Well, turn to that passage, please, uh, that we read earlier in Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2. Well, as you know, Christmas Day is over, and we're coming out of the Christmas days slowly, aren't we, with all the uh, busyness and the stress of getting ready for the one big day. And really now, you start to think over the next few days of entering back into real life, don't we? Kind of putting the decorations away will come not too soon, uh, but we will be coming soon. We'll be back in work. We have to sort all the rubbish out. We have to uh, deal with all that. And as well, often at this time, people start to worry about the bill, don't they? You know, the credit card bill that you weren't thinking about in the build up to Christmas just to get everything in ready for the day, but now that those pressures are looming. And often that can be a sign kind of other things. Maybe for Christmas we try and ignore the problems that we have in life and just try and get through, but then we have to enter the reality of real life, the reality of day-to-day struggles. And when we come to this passage, the Christmas story, as it were, um, continues because we see Jesus, the baby born, now in a place, in a situation where he is um, running away and fleeing for his life with his family. What has happened? We'll just have a quick recap. Jesus has been born in Bethlehem, and maybe six months to two years after that, um, the wise men come and see him, and they come from the east, they come and bring him uh, these wonderful gifts, and Christ the Messiah, they come and worship him and praise him, and Herod found out, didn't he, because they went to ask him, where's the king born? And so Herod um, says, come back and tell me where he is. But the, uh, the wise men didn't after um, being told not to go back to tell Herod. So Herod is now furious and he is waiting for the, uh, the wise men to come back. Um, and what happens? Well, that's what we pick up now, isn't it? Herod is waiting. He is seething. He is angry. And we see Jesus in the reality of, of the darkness of daily life. So here's four headings for us to see how this, this account helps us in the reality of the next few months, when real life happens, when the lights are down, when we have to encounter and deal with those pro- problems in our lives. The first is this, the battle that we all face, the battle we all face. Verses 13 to 17, we see this point. So Herod, as we looked at last week, remember, we know historically he was a person who craved power. He loved power and he imposed himself on people by creating massive, impressive buildings. And we know that he was felt threatened because he held so importantly to this power. If anybody came to threaten his power, he wanted to get rid of them. So we know that he killed close friends. We know that he killed one of his wives and at least two of his sons because he was threatened by them, taken over from him. Uh, And so in verse two and three of chapter two, we saw he hears this other king is coming. And what is his response? He is troubled. But not only is he troubled in verse 3, all of Jerusalem is troubled because they know you don't mention other kings to Herod. It's like, what have you done? Now he's going to do something horrible. And that's exactly what we see, isn't it? We see his brutality coming in verse 13. An angel departed, uh, when they departed, sorry, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee um, to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you because Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And so they rose and they ran. Herod wants this child dead. 
You can imagine Herod there kind of, kind of tapping on his throne impatiently, waiting for their wise men to come back to tell of this news of this king. One day, they don't come back. Two days, they don't come back. And then verse 16, he realizes what's happened. Herod saw that he's been tricked. So Herod um, has, feels this threat of another king, and he's been duped by these men. So you can imagine this man who's on the edge anyway is now just furious. So what does he do? He sends people down to Bethlehem. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in that region who were two years old or under. So it would have taken about 20 minutes for people to get down, for his men to get down on horseback from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. And there they were, all the children under two. The reality is there would have been about 12 to 20 children in that area that would have killed, been killed. And just the darkness of that. How horrendous that Herod would do that. Now, what's going on? Now, Herod sees a threat to his power and he lashes out. Nobody crosses me. Nobody tells me what to do. Nobody tricks me. Nobody takes my throne. So he went to these extreme lengths to protect his power, which was so precious to him. Now, last time we saw and we kind of thought of, of how that can be like us in one sense because we don't like to be told what to do. We can be nearer to Herod than we realize. We thought last time about how we want to be kings and lords of our life. We want to be in the driving seat and nobody tells us what to do. And when we hear that there's a Lord who's come, we don't want to listen. We want to do our own thing. So we want Jesus not in the, on the steering wheel of our life as we want. We want him in the boot or we want him out of the car. We want to do things our way. And if there's any threat to that, we're offended and we even get angry. As John Stott put it, the essence of sin is substituting ourselves for God. We've said to Jesus, out of the way, I'm the Lord. I'm the boss. Now I wonder this morning again. As Jesus comes to you and says, I'm the Lord, I'm the King, trust me, follow my ways. How does that make us feel? Does that offend us? Well, as we go on in this account, ask this question, can I trust this Jesus with my life? Can I trust him with what I have? Can I listen to him instead of listening to myself? Queen Victoria ruled over a third of the world in the 1800s, and she said these words, I, couldn't, I can't wait to meet Jesus, so that I can cast my crown before him. Like she knew, even with all her power and splendor, that there was one greater than her, one who deserved honor and praise. And maybe this morning as a Christian, you've pushed Jesus off the throne. You've taken your eye off him, and you've just been doing things your own way, just been following your own feelings or uh, listening to our culture more than listening to Jesus. And he comes along and says, remember who I am. Remember what I've done. Trust me. I'm the Lord. Look how glorious I am. Look how much I've done to save and rescue. So you see, this is the battle we face. It's a battle for a, the lordship of our lives. But as well as another battle here, because there is, if we put anything in the place of Jesus, if we put anything in the place of God in our lives, we're in a big, risky situation, aren't we? Herod's purpose his meaning of life this is where he found his identity where he found his um where he found his, who he was was all wrapped up in i'm the king and if anybody takes that away from me then i will lash out see his purpose his security was all in his in his job wasn't it there and that can be a lot like us can't it 
Aren't there things in our life that we turn to for comfort, for security, for peace, for meaning, for purpose, that aren't God? And the problem is they become our idols. They become the thing that we live for. They become our all. And if anything threatens those idols, then we lash out. Then we, we panic. What is it in your life where you've been turning for purpose instead of turning to Jesus? Where have you been turning for hope instead of him? What have you been turning to for your life? You see, if we can be like Harry, we can turn our work into our identity and our purpose. And if that's all we live for, what happens when that's under threat? You know, it, it takes over, doesn't it? The, uh, the idol of work will promise us uh, prestige, will promise us um, uh, kind of people looking up to us, promise us success. But if we don't get that, what happens? It promises everything, and so we let it take over. We do whatever work tells us. We become workaholics, as it were, give everything to it, but then gives us nothing back and leaves us empty. If we turn our family into our idol, we put all the pressure on our children to make them to be who we want them to be, and if they don't, then we're furious or just crushed. If we turn our money and possessions into our idols, We'll always be worried about our finances, always thinking about it. It'll, it'll um, shape everything we do. If we turn pleasure or comfort into our idols, this is how I'm going to find my purpose. This is where I turn to when things are hard. Then we become addicted. We, become, um, we just struggle and we, we don't turn to Jesus and they control us. So these idols promise everything and they leave us. Um, we, we follow them. We do whatever they say. But Jesus says, I want to be your Lord. Trust me. And he's the Lord who sets us free. I've come to set you free. These other idols hold us. Promise everything, leave us empty. Jesus promises everything and gives us his all. These are the battles we face going on in heart. What is it in your life? It's going to be different for everyone. What is it in your life that is an idol that you turn to when you struggle, that you turn to uh, to give you purpose and hope, to keep you going? Well, it needs to be Jesus because he'll never let us down. This is the battles in our heart, the battle for the lordship of our lives, the battle we all face. The second thing in this passage we see where Jesus meets us in the reality of our lives is the hope we all need, verses 16 to 18. Now, in these verses, there are not many darker things are there than this horrendous uh, king, hungry for power, sending out his men to kill these children. Just so dark. And you think, well, is there any hope in these verses? Well, there is hope, and it comes in verse 18. Because there, Matthew is quoting from the Old Testament. Matthew often will quote from the Old Testament. He knows his Old Testament well. He is getting this one to get this message across to Jewish readers. And he is quoting from the book of Jeremiah. Now, in Jeremiah, just to remind you what Jeremiah is about, God's people have been taken away from their home in Jerusalem. And now they're in exile in Babylon. They're away from their home. They're away from everything they know, all their comforts, all the things that they're used to. Uh, and they're away from the temple. So they couldn't make sacrifices to God. So in one sense, they feel far away from God. They're in exile. They are away from home. So Jeremiah is a, is a book of weeping, of lamentation, because they're far away from, from, from their home. So what does Jeremiah say? Well, he's quoting here these words. But let me read the chapter, uh, Jeremiah 31, 15, 16, and 17, just to hear the context. He says this, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, 
lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And then it goes on to say in Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. See, the verse after that in Jeremiah is a verse of hope. Yes, there's weeping now, but there is hope. So where is the hope in this passage? Where is the light? There was one child who was saved, one child who didn't die, one child who escaped the sword, as it were, and he fled to Egypt, and now he lives. And who's that child? That child's the Messiah, the one who is going to bring us home to God the one who is going to rescue his people, God's king, the promised one, and who will bring an end to all suffering and slaughter. He is the one who's coming to bring peace. Now, as we pause and think on that, in the darkest of situations in this passage, there's light. Maybe at the moment, your life seems very dark. And yes, Christmas was a nice kind of distraction for a few days, but you know real life is around the corner and it's dark, and it seems hopeless. Where's the light? Well, let's go again to the manger this morning. Let's go there, and as we look into the face of that baby, again, remember, we see the face of God with us. As we look into the, uh, the, the manger, we see those arms wriggling. We see God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is protected, and he is safe, and he goes to the cross, and he rescues us, and one day he is returning to take away all the darkness. So that child that was saved, that toddler, means that God is on his throne, and that even in the dark situations, God is working out his purposes, and that God deeply loves you. All of those truths we need to hold in when we face those dark times. He is ruling, he is reigning, and he loves you enough to come into this world as a baby. So I don't know the darkness that you're facing, but there is a God who made himself vulnerable and weak and breakable because he loves you so much. So hold on to that in your darkness because Jesus is in control and he will come back and restore it and fix everything. Keep our eyes on him, even when there's hopelessness. So there's the battle we all face, this battle for the Lordship. There's this hope that we all need. And in this passage as well, when we're facing kind of real life around the corner, we need to see the gift of God's grace. Now, to be rescued, Joseph and the family needed to go somewhere, didn't they? Where did they flee? They fled to Egypt. And again, Matthew gives us a quote from the Old Testament in verse 15. Um, look what it says. In verse 15, there remained, uh, they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, that's a quote from Hosea, chapter 11. Again, we need to, if we read what Hosea is saying, it helps us understand what's going on here. This is what the verse says. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burnt offerings to idols. So Hosea, the prophet, is looking at God's people, and he's looking at the events of Exodus, and how God called the nation of Israel out of exodus out of egypt yet how did they respond did they listen to the god who saved them no they kept rejecting him they kept going their own way so they were taken through the wilderness and they test they were faced test after test after god will they trust me and no they failed 
And in the Old Testament, we see Israel being called God's son. That's how often Israel is referred to. So when in Exodus 4, it said, um, Moses is told to say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So Israel is God's son. So what's Matthew doing us? Well, he's showing us that Jesus is actually retracing Israel's steps, isn't he? Step one, where did, how did Israel end up, God's people end up in, in Egypt? They went and they, they were fleeing a famine, remember? Joseph's family had to move to Egypt because there was a famine in the land and Joseph was there to save them. So God's people moved from where they were and they fled to Egypt to be saved. And then they were rescued from Egypt. So they left Egypt and they went to the wilderness. But when they were in the wilderness, they were tempted. They faced 40 years. And what did they do? They just failed and failed and failed, didn't they? They were not faithful sons of God. But then Matthew tells us Jesus is the true Israel, the true son of God. So what happens to him? Well, step one, he flees to Egypt to be protected from the danger that is there. Step two, he leaves Egypt. And look what happens in chapter four of Matthew. Where does Jesus end up going? Into the wilderness for 40, not 40 years, but 40 days. And he is tested. He faces temptation. And what does Jesus do? He stands firm. He's the true faithful son of God. In every way that Israel failed, Jesus didn't. He is the true and better Israel. And Matthew wants us to see, look what's happening here. Jesus is retracing the steps. He is our hope. He is the true obedient one. Now you think, well, that's interesting to see how that connects. Fair, okay. But what difference does that make to our lives? How do you see what Jesus is doing? He is living the life that Israel couldn't live. And that's why Jesus came for us. We fail when we enter temptation, when we enter our struggles and the wilderness of this world, we fail. But Jesus didn't. So he lived the life we couldn't live. And he says, if you trust in me, you will get credited my performance. All of the ways I have obeyed will be put into your account. And all of the ways you have failed, I will take on myself and take to the cross and be killed there for your wrong. His righteousness is given to us as a gift. And so when we trust in Jesus, we become united to him, and we then are seen by God the Father as righteous as the Son. Isn't that amazing? This is the gift of grace. We don't earn it. This is given to us. So Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we should have died, so that if we trust in him, then we have this wonderful, glorious forgiveness. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 3 it's you know we're counted as righteous he says now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to god for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin but now the righteousness of god has been manifest has been shown apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, we are never going to be right before God by what we do. But Jesus has done it for us. And as Paul points out there, it's all a gift. It's a time for receiving and giving gifts, isn't it? 
Can you imagine if yesterday when you, were, you had a gift given to you, you then kind of said, right, can I transfer the money across to you now? How much do I owe you for that? It's like, no, 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 it's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't pay for this. Jesus says, accept this gift. I've lived a life you could never live. Accept it. Now, are we living in the light of that? Are you trusting in the righteousness of Jesus? Or are you trusting in your own righteousness? Because if we're trusting in the righteousness of Jesus, Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You are accepted in Christ. And the gift that is offered us is this glorious acceptance in him. Now, Jesus took our failure. Our failure doesn't just disappear. He took it on himself. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God. Remember what the essence of sin is, as John Stott puts it? The essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. And what's the essence of salvation? It is God substituting himself for us so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be united to Jesus. Can you see the gift of grace that we need as we face real life? accepted in Christ, not based on our performance, but on his. So the battle we all face, the struggle for the lordship of our lives, the hope we all need, the gift of grace God offers, and the last thing is the price Jesus paid. So the final verse of that passage, look what we're told. It's a bit, a bit strange really, to be honest, because Joseph has this dream while they're in Egypt, uh, and he, he's told you can now return uh, because Herod has died. So they head back, but then they hear Herod's son is in power, and he's pretty volatile too. As you can imagine, he probably has had quite a, a tough upbringing or um, unstable upbringing. And so they have to go back to where Joseph's from, which is Nazareth. And then we're told in the last verse, he did this so the prophet shall be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. But here's the problem. That verse isn't in the Old Testament. So what's it talking about? He'll be a Nazarene. Well, we need to understand what Nazareth is like and what, what it's um, thought of in the Bible and at the time. Because Nazareth was a nowhere place. Rough, horrible, um, no one wants to be there, no one wants to go from there. And I can't give an example because I'll offend someone. You know that kind of place? It's where you don't want to be from. It's where you don't want to go. It's where you don't want to end up living. And so what does it mean that Jesus will be associated with Nazareth? Well, remember what Nathan says in John 1, you know, and um, his brother Philip comes and tells him, look, I've, I've, the Messiah's come, come to me to Nazareth, and we'll find him, and Nathaniel, um, and, uh, yeah, Nathaniel's like, can anything good from, come from Nazareth? The, the, the king, you know, our Messiah, he's not going to come from Nazareth, place in there, the place where you think of instead of Nazareth, he's not going to come from there, you know, here, just nobody good comes from there. Jesus forever was associated with this nothing place, with this um, hated and despised place. That's what it means for him to become a Nazarene. He will be associated and despised, which means he fulfills the prophecies that tell us he's going to be despised and rejected. So like Isaiah 53, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, he was despised and rejected by men. He was from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as for him, who men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was a nobody. 
from a nowhere place that everybody wanted to write off. That's what it cost Jesus to offer the free gift of grace. He willingly came from the heights of heaven where he was praised and rejoiced and celebrated in and he became a nobody from a nowhere place. That's how far he was he sunk for us. As Isaiah 53 goes on to say, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace with his wounds we are healed. We like sheep have gone astray, turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What did it cost Jesus to bring this salvation, this hope that we have? It cost him everything. And he gave it up for you. He gave that up for me and for you. And that is our glorious saviour. When we realise that this king gave up all of that for us, do you see how it helps us to live everything out we've seen today? Then we realise this is a king I can trust. Because he did this for me. I can submit to him. Compare him to your idols. And he, he shatters them because he is so glorious. Then we see we have hope, because whatever the darkness, I have his love to sustain me and his patience with me. Rejoice that um, he lived the life we couldn't and took, my, took the blame in my place. And he humbled himself to this point, paid the price so that we can have this glorious forgiveness. So that is our savior. And I pray that as we think on that, as we enter into, back into normal life over the next few days, that we will see that we've got a glorious king who gave this up for us, uh, walking with us in the darkness, hand in hand, saying, I'll take you, I've got you, all the way to glory. Let's pray before we sing our last uh, song together. Lord, we praise you and thank you that Jesus uh, went through all of this for us, that he is the true and better Israel, the true son of God, who lived a perfect life so that we could uh, be given that gift of righteousness. Please, Lord, would you help us to live that out and, Lord, to be rejoicing in the glorious hope of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.